0: Please note, this episode discusses the memoir of a black entertainer written in the 1920s. As we will be quoting directly from the book, this episode contains some racial language and terms which are not acceptable terms today.
1: He worked as a valet, circus performer, a sailor, an entertainer, a boxer. He travelled and sailed all around the world before ending up in Morecambe.
0: This is 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts, the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums, and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. Today's object is a memoir which is a rare survivor, and one which tells the story of a man who travelled the world and lived an adventurous life before finally settling down in Morecambe. Today's object is the autobiography of James Hearns. The autobiography is a small, light booklet which only contains 12 pages, but across those 12 pages is told the fascinating story of the early life of James Hearns, who was born in Virginia in the 1860s and traveled the world before settling in Morecambe as a beach entertainer. The booklet measures 18 centimeters by 12 and a half centimeters and is printed in black and white, including the paper front cover. On the cover is a picture of James, dressed smartly in front of a backdrop of a window and a cane chair. Around the photo is written the title, The Life of James Cooney, Coloured Entertainer, His World Adventures and Reminiscences. This is the name and the words that James used to describe himself, and uses throughout the memoir. We're not sure when or why James Hearns took on the name James Cooney, but he appears to have used it as his stage name, and also uses it in this reminiscence. This name may have been referring to a racial slur, or it may have been selected as it was a common name in Ireland, where James spent several of his teenage years. James never left any clues to tell us why he chose it. We spoke to Valerie Waterhouse, a PhD researcher at Huddersfield University, to find out more about James's life and the autobiography.
1: I've got the object here in front of me, and the thing that really strikes you about it is the photograph, which shows James. He's got a sort of little fez cap on his head in a sort of comic way his head slightly tilted he's smiling he looks like he's someone who's used to looking at a camera and he's got a very friendly slightly comic air to him i mean he was a comedian and you can already tell from the photograph that he's a, he's an entertainer why is it so important and so rare well this memoir is mentioned in a in March 1932 obituary which was the year that, that James unfortunately passed away, in the Morecambe Guardian. There was a long gap, and then it was mentioned again in 1999 by a university professor named Baz Kershaw, who wrote a book called The Radical in Performance. Professor Kershaw says he, he knows of the memoir, but doesn't say where it was located. And then there's a historian called Geoffrey Green, who has a website documenting black lives in Britain, which is really, really worth looking at. And he wrote about James Hearn saying that he couldn't find a copy of the memoir. So I knew it existed and I was trying to track it down and I contacted the British Library. The Huddersfield librarian Zoe Johnson and the Huddersfield um, Heritage Key Archives looked for it. They couldn't find it. And then I contacted Lancaster Museums because you'd written an article uh, online about um, James Hearns and Rachel sent me a copy of this document saying we've got this and I went oh that's it this is the memoir this is the missing memoir. In a nutshell the whole of the memoir takes up about 10 pages so it's very short but it's very dense. It begins with James Hearns' birth in 1867 in the USA. It's undated but it ends most probably in the late 1920s in Morecambe. And it's a kind of picaresque account of his early life and adventures covering all the exciting things he did. He worked as a valet. He worked as a circus performer, a sailor, an entertainer, a boxer, even as a wild man in a fake kind of uh, African tribal troupe. He travelled and he sailed all around the world from America to Argentina, to Africa, Europe, Sardinia, before
0: ending up in Morecambe. So let's dig deeper into this fascinating life and find out about James's early years.
1: James was born in 1867 in Charlottesville, Virginia, two years after the abolition of slavery in the USA, and his parents were enslaved people. He was the youngest of seven children, and he says that he and his sister Ella, being the youngest, were the luckiest, because they were the only ones who were born outside of slavery. He talks in the memoir of playing as a small child around the slave block in the market square in Charlottesville, where he said his mother was sold twice, the last time to a Mr. Finley or possibly a Mr. Finley, who owned a large plantation there. And he says that when the enslaved people of African heritage gained their freedom in America in 1865, it was really hard for them because they had no money and they had nowhere to go. In his case, it was even harder because... Both of his parents died when he was very, very young. So he was left an orphan. He had to go and live with an older brother who obviously didn't have any money either. So he ended up working in hotels and his words running messages here and there and around hotels for white gentlemen. The thing that really moved me most about this section is that he says that he only ever met two of his siblings because they'd all been sold into slavery. And yet their bonds remained really strong. And although he never met them, he remembered their names for the rest of his life. Fanny, Vesta, Nimrod, Abraham, Willie, Ella, and then there was James himself.
0: So how did James, young and orphaned with very little money, end up travelling the world and finally settling in Europe? Well,
1: when he was about 12, in about 1879, he met an Irishman named Mr Moore in the hotel where he was working at the time. And this man was very kind to him and he asked him if he'd like to come over to Europe with him. So they travelled to Ireland and Mr Moore helped him to find a job as a valet to another gentleman named Mr Rail of Anneville in Tipperary for about four years. James was treated well there, but when he was about 16, he basically got a bit bored and restless and he ran away and he joined a circus. It was Powell and Clark's American Circus, he says in the memoir. He talks about the various things that he was involved in there, including snake charming, wolf taming, elephant riding, but then he got fed up with that as well because it was quite a hard life, living in quite miserable conditions. So he left, ran away from that as well, and he got aboard a steamer to Liverpool where he ended up on the streets, penniless and homeless. He ended up on a ship to Sierra Leone on the West African coast, thinking that he might be happier in Africa. But he wasn't happier in Africa. That didn't work out at all. And he very soon left. And he started this life as a sailor on various ships. The first one was carrying peanuts and palm oil nuts to Marseille in France, but they never actually made it because I think it went to ground. And then he'd be off on one ship, and then he'd desert that and get onto another ship, and he had various adventures. But uh, eventually, he ended up on the Rock of Gibraltar in jail, aged 17. Somehow or other, he had this resilience and he had this optimism. And in jail, he ended up being promoted and becoming a cleaner and washer out of cells. He put on a stone in weight. He was there for six weeks. He was in jail because he was on the Gibraltar Rock without a permit, he says. But on his release, the governor gave him a dollar and he ended up getting a job in various canteens, as he calls them, singing and dancing. And he says specifically this was in 1884. Or-
0: At this point, James was only 17 years old, but had already travelled the world. Most of the memoir deals with his life before the age of 30, when James settled in Morecambe for the rest of his life. So what brought him there? So he ended up in Ipswich, randomly, and he said
1: there was a fair on there at the time. He ended up joining, in his terminology, the group of coloured boys acting as wild men. They told him that there was lots of money in it, so he decided to join up with them. And he was supposed to pretend he couldn't speak English, because they were pretending to be Zulu tribesmen. It all was going really well, till one day somebody overheard them speaking in English, one of the audience, and um, asked to get their money back. And they did this while they were on the stage. They basically had to run away. They were still wearing not much. The other showman on the fairground came to their rescue. But unfortunately, their white boss ran off with the money. At this point, um, James is once more jobless and needs to find a way of making money. So he goes back to Liverpool And he ends up working on a ship as a sailor and ends up in Buenos Aires, where he joins the Argentine Navy for a few months. But then he leaves. He ends up in Montreal in Canada, working on a timber wharf. There's a moment here that really made me stop and think, because for a while he thought, shall I go back home? But he decided against it. And in his words, he said, Virginia, my native country, bore no charm for me, a mother being dead. I had no wish to return. So winter coming on I thought I would go back to the old country and the old country was Britain. So he once more made his way back to Britain to Glasgow initially and then he made his way back to Liverpool where he was robbed and ended up once again on the streets in Liverpool destitute. He joined another circus as a clown's assistant. This was the Hengler's Circus. He then went over to Ireland, worked as a waiter and then for four years he toured with the very famous at the time Royal Bohe Brothers, who were banjo players of Caribbean origin, who were so famous at the time that I think they even taught King Edward to play the banjo. He had a brief and extremely unsuccessful stint as boxer, and then he said he toured Britain and Europe as a clown. His account of all these adventures likely ends in the 1890s, and he probably came to Morecambe sometime in the mid 1890s it's thought he was certainly here by 1898 the final two paragraphs of the memoir do deal with his time in Morecambe and he says again in his words that he came to Morecambe a good many years ago in the company of a number of coloured men and in this good old town we had the time of our lives. And he says most of the men that he came with have now passed away, and he's now talking from the late 1920s, and only three of them are still alive. But he's made Morecambe his home. We know that at some point, not mentioned in the memoir, he was married, but his first wife died. And we know this because on the wedding certificate to his second wife, he describes himself as a widower. In Morecambe, he found love. In 1898, He married Emily Nicholson, who was a 24-year-old Miller's daughter who was living in in the Sands. She was a white woman, and they had two children,
0: Isabella and Jim. Although he does not really deal with his time in Morecambe in the memoir, we know from a few rare photographs and some accounts of people who remember him that he joined the number one troupe, who entertained people on the West End beach. Valerie let us know a little bit more about this aspect of his life. Malachi Whitaker is a lady who became
1: a quite a well-known short story writer from Bradford, um, writing in the 1920s and 30s. But in the early 1900s, her family started to rent a house in Morecambe every summer. And she recounts in an unpublished piece of juvenilia that she used to go down and watch James Hearns, James Cooney, as he was known on the stage, in the number one troupe. And the number one troupe was a group of both white and black entertainers. The two prime shakers and movers of the troupe were James Cooney and a white man named Alex Day. And there is a newspaper report from eighteen ninety-nine in the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, which talks about the tragic death of a married man named Harris who was a capital basso, who was one of the mainstays of the troupe. But sadly, he died, and it was the third loss the company has sustained this season, the latest victim to the vicissitudes of a Morecambe climate, said the Sheffield Daily Telegraph. So then some other sources describe what the entertainers did in those days. And as well as singing spirituals, they did sketches about the lives of enslaved people of African heritage in America. And there was even one sketch which included a master enslaver wielding a whip. So this does suggest that several of the entertainers were the descendants of enslaved people of African heritage in America, just as James was himself. There's a recollection from a Mrs. Harvey of Bolton-the-Sands in, in a 1996 book called Pom-Poms and Ruffles. Mrs. Harvey thinks that she knows the names of some of the men. She says there were five of them originally called Davis, Skelly, Samuels, Thompson, and that they were led by a Dickie Mudd. And then Geoffrey Green, the historian of black British lives, mentioned that in 2018 a descendant of one of these men in Yorkshire said that two of James Cooney's colleagues were William Poe Smith, who was Jamaican, and Charles Binney Foster, who was from the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana, but nothing is known about these men. So if anyone has any information about them, that would be fantastic if
0: you contacted Lancaster Museums. James died in 1932. And although he does not mention the racism he faced in life in the memoir, we can see traces of it in his obituary. Valerie told us about the final years of James's life.
1: Emily died before James in 1926 aged 52 but James never remarried he lived alone after that the couple do seem to have been extremely close and he ended his career as a commissionaire a uniformed door attendant and a bill distributor for for Morecambe's royalty theatre so he became very very well known amongst the theatre-going public which was basically most of Morecambe at that time. (laughs) He died six years after Emily in 1932. The Morecambe Guardian ran a three-column obituary entitled The Whitest of Black Men Passers, which the headline writer of the time evidently considered to be a compliment. Hundreds of people attended James Hearn's funeral and a memorial paid for by public subscription was erected in his memory in Morecambe's Torres Cemetery. It's in Balmoral Red Granite and it's seven feet high. And it has these lines on it, which are born under southern skies, sailed the seven seas at anchor in the town he loved. James was a trailblazer. He was a multi-talented man. He was much loved by Morecambe's people. We don't know the racism he faced. We don't know his feelings about that. And he doesn't talk about that in the memoir. But we really should remember James Hearns because the people of the time thought he should be remembered. And then, as now, James Hearns really deserves our admiration and respect.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. Why not listen to some of our other episodes where we discuss other fascinating historical figures, from scientists to singers?